Good morning. This is Noel Clark, Mickey Smith from Doctor Who. This is Neve McIntosh. I'm Madame Vastra from Doctor Who, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. <laughs> I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Thomas Turkey. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys sitting around thinking, talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. Happy Thanksgiving, Thomas Turkey. Gobble, 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 gobble. I was going to introduce myself as Super Small Steve. <laughs> I thought about I thought about stealing your thunder, but I knew that Thomas Turkey was here for a very special reason. Enjoying your Thanksgiving feast. Have a little cranberry, Steve. <laughs> Film at eleven. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Hey, Chip, guess what? I watched a movie this week. Well, since we uh, actually review one every week, I mean, I guess Chip and Chip does. Chip does. Uh, th- thank goodness that uh, you, you, you saw one. Steve, what did we watch? We both got a chance to see Spirited. This is the latest on Apple TV+. Plus. This is a musical adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Have you heard of A Christmas Carol, Chip? Steve, I've never heard of it. Is it a, a film? Is it a movie? Is it a book? It uh, everything that literature is in 2021. It has been adapted and readapted, and now we get a musical version, this one on Apple TV+, Plus, featuring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. Well, you've got the two you know, charming people. I mean, if you have a kid my age, you know, they've seen Elf, what, a thousand times? A hundred thousand times. And did you see the the trailer for this where he said this is not elf? <laughs> Will Farrell, Will Farrell, this is not elf. And then Ryan Reynolds, this is not Deadpool. <laughs> well, you got two charming guys, you've got a great cast, you've got big time dance scenes going on. And then you've got um, a, a nice take, a, a certainly a reinvention of the, the story in a way that is not basically following the same plot of the previous. And it notes that it is an adaptation. Several times in there, it's they are saying to us, yes, we know we're doing A Christmas Carol again, but we are doing it different. The choreography, the dance numbers are phenomenal. They spent $75 million on this movie, and I think a lot of it is the cast the sets and the costumes and and hiring those dancers well if you think the holiday season's coming you need to have something that will appeal to a broad audience of people mm-hmm. there's enough knowledge of it so that i don't know everyone can follow along and then um every time they start a, a song um they go oh no not another song Every time, every song starts out with, oh, don't, can we not? <laughs> and at the end of the movie, uh, as we're rolling the credits, you guys want to see the rest of the song? 
a complete and really amazing piece of music at the end where somehow it didn't fit into the movie or maybe it was always intended to be at the end, but it seems like it was cut from the movie and just so many people involved with these scenes. It was cut from the movie because Jacob said, no, we're not going to sing this. And he goes, oh, okay. Not just Jacob. Jacob Marley. This is this is the 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 twist for 2022 is Jacob Marley is in charge of the spirits who are changing people's lives. And Will Farrell is the ghost of Christmas present who is kind of in charge with Jacob Marley of, of getting this done. How about Ryan Reynolds' job? He is he's been designed to win, right? <laughs> win at all costs, Steve. And I love how that is presented at the beginning of this movie. He is talking to this group of people and, and they're like, no, we don't want to pay this consultant to come in and tell us what to do. We don't have the money. And he's like, you're right. Here's why you need my help. And it's, it's the music man. It is this guy being the the charismatic guy who has the right answers. But look at what he does. He creates division. Mm-hmm. He finds mm-hmm. a weak point and certainly exploits it. That eventually comes out um, with when his niece comes to visit and she mm-hmm. wants to win the local school election. And we get a lot of commentary on what social media does to young people. And in fact, we go to the dark place of where it can take young people and there's the commentary, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The story yeah. of this is that we have tools and we have technology that can transform people's lives, and mm-hmm. we've used it to destroy people. The 21st century version of Scrooge is that cruelty that we can use at this time, that that tool that we can use for good, or we can choose to be cruel. And the cruelty of that is, is highlighted here. Well, it's not just cruelty. It's the aftermath, the wake of this. And the point is, is we can put together either the models or we can find the the soft spot to be able to hurt somebody. This is our political climate. This is right. how companies attack another company and how misinformation, whether true or not, I can use the word misinformation, how information gets out there and mm-hmm. people take it to the one where they want to and becoming highly um uh, weaponized weaponized is a great word for that and mm-hmm. what it ends up doing is it destroys people it, yep. it can destroy people and that's exactly what we see in this a young boy suffers from that weaponization of information and and we see that change in ryan reynolds character when he realizes that cruelty can can be devastating well and, and it's for a young person but he does it in real life and you see it like his elections well and this one is christmas trees real christmas trees versus artificial they both have employees by the way mm-hmm. so it can you can take it anywhere you want to but that certainly was commentary on today that we have technology right. we can destroy each other and is that really how we want to teach and it didn't ask this, but this is a big question that we we should be asking ourselves is how forgiving should we be to greet people who make, you know, indiscretions, make mm-hmm. um, make statements 
um, that are certainly outside their character or they may want to take back. Mm-hmm. And so and how many and, years back do we do we delve into those mistakes? Can we hold somebody accountable for a mistake from years past? That is part of the message here. And Kyrie Irving is is a person right now for the Brooklyn Nets who has basically said something that he certainly it sounds like he regrets. Mm-hmm. Um how how forgiving do we allow that to be? So anyway, it, it certainly is a um a fun, it's a silly movie. Yes. There is a lot of uh, playfulness in it. Of course, there's uh, heartstrings that, that get pulled throughout the thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it will appeal to um, a broad audience of people. And I, I will mention that uh, a couple times there is a joke on about Molly, which is a drug. That mm-hmm. seems total out of totally out of character. And once again, I, I you know I don't know where this comes from. Uh, in Hollywood, it seems like that they throw these random things in in there that really didn't need to be in there. Agreed. We've we've talked about this before. I think that there is a culture of people that use drugs and think that it's normal and it is so outside of the norm for my lifestyle and and yours that it it just it's jarring to hear them just casually mention drugs in the middle of this family film yeah i i just i don't know where it comes from and uh it it must be the california writers it must be a part of their circle enough that it just kind of becomes you know oh i didn't really think about that but let's let's be blunt about it middle america may be aware of these things but it just doesn't seem like it should be part of a all ages type of film. And what I would say, all ages, I, I, I don't think this is appropriate maybe for a four-year-old. But if you they were in the room and this was going on, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no there's no um graphic uh scenes in any way. It's just a lot of silliness. Well, there's language. There's there's some language in this chip. Good afternoon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Weaponized good afternoon. I love this. I this is my favorite song in this in this whole show. They they sing a whole song about how good afternoon is the cruelest thing you can say to somebody. And all I could think was thinking of uh the Willy Wonka where I said I said good afternoon, sir. Is <laughs> just cruel and unusual it is the curse word of this universe and that song and particularly that choreography that dance was my favorite of this movie and it comes back later on in a modern world steve yes it does yes it does i think that what this suffers a little bit is some of the songs really needed a hook the the songs are not great in this they're fine they're fine songs but ryan reynolds and will ferrell are not singers and they're not dancers Steve, steve there's no song that will become part of your holiday playlist agreed okay but that doesn't mean they're bad songs that just means that there's no there's no real hook there. It doesn't matter. Go have fun. Watch this film. Look, you know, Thanksgiving's coming. At some point, you're going to be like, I'm tired. Let's go sit down and just kind of be. And just curl grandma up and, and your grandson up or your, you know, and just pull, pull him next to you and watch a film. We've got Tracy Morgan as the spirit of Christmas future. He does a great job in this one. All he wanted was a catchphrase, Steve. <laughs> but it works. It works so well. I wish that there were more cameos. We get a very surprising cameo from Dame Judy Dench, which is 
funny, but I would have loved to have seen Bobcat Goldthwait. There was one character in here, the cab driver, that was so similar to the cab driver in Scrooge. I would have loved to see a Bobcat Goldthwait in that part. You've been Christmas Carol, Steve. <laughs> this is this is a good 21st century version of that classic Charles Dickens story taking into account all of the the ideas of cruelty and joy and how we can treat each other better. It, it, this is very well done. 65 out of 100. There you go. I'm super small Steve. Good afternoon. Opening this week, we've got some fun films and some interesting films and some dark films. Boy, oh boy, it is definitely coming up on on the award season and all the good movies are coming out, huh? Well, Steve, you know, we've got to get those movies in by the end of the year. Why not put them all in on Thanksgiving week? Because, you know, that same movie person will probably Mm -hmm. see three or four of these films, right? Agreed. The first one is called The Fablemans. We've been hearing about this one for a while. This is the autobiography of Steven Spielberg. The idea of a young man who wants to grow up to be a filmmaker. And this looks great. And this is Mm -hmm. going to be up for movie of the year, most likely. For sure. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I I look forward to seeing that one. The second one is called The Sun. This is a... uh, A very heartfelt Sony Pictures classic. This is a a story of a dad that is absent and sort Mm -hmm. of the um, how that impacts the family and the children. Holy Mm -hmm. cow. This is Hugh Jackman. This could be movie of the year, too. Yes, Hugh Jackman in a very heartfelt role. We've got Laura Dern, your least favorite actor of the of the century and Anthony Hopkins as Hugh Jackman's father. Uh, yes, I, I see a lot of potential for this one. Steve, Thanksgiving's coming up and everyone loves a good meal. <laughs> so we watched this trailer and I jumped in my seat watching this one. It's called Bones and All. This is Timothy Chalamet, who is one of the uh, young people who are doing great things in acting nowadays. This is the story of uh, uh, cannibals or possibly some sort of werewolf. These are people who eat other people. And boy, was I stunned when I watched this trailer. Yeah, this is a horror film, Steve. Yeah. Steve, have you got something for a maverick and goose? Yes. Time for the U.S. Navy to get back in the air. U.S. Navy fighter pilots risk their lives during the Korean War in the movie Devotion, based on a true story. This looks great. Steve, you got a family film for us? Yes. Disney has something for us this week. It's called Strange World. And I have heard a little bit about this movie over the last few weeks. But, boy, it seems like Strange World is going to be one of those Disney movies that gets lost in the shuffle. Steve, we got streaming stuff coming up, you know, and franchises can never die. So tell us about them. You know what everybody loves, Chip? Everybody loves a Christmas story. Those of you who had cable growing up, you watch this ad nauseum. There's a sequel that is out now on HBO Max called A Christmas Story Christmas. This is adult Ralphie returning to his childhood home to try to recreate that Christmas Feeling. This is actually Peter Billingsley who plays actual Ralphie in the 21st century. But I'm not really sure if it's based on any Gene Shepard story. I don't know other than the original was obviously a Gene Shepard story. This is this is something that they're trying to make 
out of his work. We get a quite a few of the original characters from the original movie, and Julie Haggerty plays the mom in this one. Julie Haggerty. There's a name you haven't heard in a long time. The other thing that I've been waiting for 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 a long time is the adaptation of The Addams Family that's coming to Netflix tomorrow, Wednesday. Yeah, that's what that's the title. The title of the show is Wednesday. It is the story of Wednesday Adams going to school to try to understand her magic ability. It's not Harry Potter. Wow. I look forward to this. This is from Tim Burton. The trailer has all of those Tim Burton pieces to it. I love the Adams family and I look forward to what they're able to do with a, a little bit of Netflix money. You got a chance to go see one of my favorite musicals at the Durham Performing Arts Center. I did, Steve. You know, we have this section called Adventures in a Black Box. We don't go to the theater often, but when we do go to the theater, we do like to note it because. It is very different to see a live performance than seeing something that's filmed. Mm-hmm. Live, I, I prefer live performance. I, I, I obviously put on live performance at, at my school, and the, the joy of putting together a big musical is fantastic. You got a chance to see Hairspray this week. Yeah, Hairspray is one of my favorites, too. Mm-hmm. This is my third time see, seeing a professional group put together Hairspray. So I have three different performances that I will compare it to. Sadly, this is the, my least favorite of the three. Okay. The music for this uh, musical is so good. Mm-hmm. It, it just pops and moves. I think the cast was fine for most of it. This is a real hard part. You know, a person who can act may not be able to sing. A person who can sing may not be able to act. Mm -hmm. We ran into that a little bit in Spirited, right? Yes, we definitely got some great actors who are not great singers. This is something that we've run into putting stage plays together in the past is is we can choose that, that charismatic actor and say, oh, we can teach that person to sing. It doesn't happen that way sometimes. But you're dealing with where you are dealing with a school, where you're basically dealing with your, your group. This is a professional group. They can go out and they can choose from many different people for mm-hmm. this. And sadly, some of the acting was substandard mm-hmm. to it. But it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't think any person who went there didn't say, oh, this is a lot of fun. Because the music just pops. It moves. It's got that. If you're not familiar with this, this story, it's, this is based on a film by John Waters. And it's just insane that this has become such a great musical. John Waters is not known for great filmmaking, but there's a heart to that 1988 story that has been expanded in the musical. Well, John Waters was never trying to make great films. He was trying to make odd films. Right. And so he loves Baltimore, where this film, uh, where this musical takes place. He uh, certainly understands the, what was going on at that time, which was integration, which is our, our story here. Mm-hmm. We are dealing with a body positive situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we have the hefty highway, Steve, and then we got, yeah. <laughs> he hit the mother motherload, Steve. Yeah. We've got mom who is um well what is she a beast of a woman, Steve? Well, she's usually portrayed by a, a male actor. <laughs> yeah. And th- that is in the tradition that in the film mm-hmm. it was based on Divine, which you know, some of you may have known from the Weird Al movie, right? Right. When Divine shows up in Weird, the Weird Al story, I was like, oh my gosh, what is Divine doing there? That was perfect. That's a perfect cameo. 
But John Waters was actually in this play. There's a recording of him uh, that plays. um, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was a newscast or something that kind of plays throughout it. The dancing is fun. This is where I, I, I noticed the most difference. You know, a director has to make their sets or actually creates their sets or is in charge of their sets. These sets, I think, made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not the same level of the previous ones I've seen. Mm-hmm. And I think that made a, a, a um, difference to me. Now, I, I do know this is part of a touring group. So they'll be here for a few weeks and stuff like that. And I see the size of the stage and things of that nature. Uh, Deepak, as it's known, is a, a beautiful, wonderful um, uh, facility. It's really nice that we have that in a, you know, a city like, like the Raleigh area, the Triangle. And so they do a very good job. Uh, there was a live band playing, but I just didn't get the level of pop and that I was, you know, I was really expecting it, that I, f- I felt like I got from previous uh, performances. Okay. If you're in the area, I would recommend going to it. You want to support the arts. And this is uh, just such a beautiful, beautiful musical. It's fun. It's such a fun, silly musical with such a deep meaning about about how we can get along with each other and how we can honor each other. I, I love Hairspray. And once again, this takes place in the 1960s when um, uh, John Waters was growing up. So it takes place in a period of time. It is part of um, the American story. And certainly Baltimore has its challenges with race, even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is the one thing that's kept me from putting this on stage is I don't have the particular demographic for the cast of this this is a story about white kids and black kids in the 1960s it is not about any other particular group and without that representation i i could not do this one justice well there can't there's always got to be a miss baltimore caraps i'm i'm glad that you go to see stage plays there's there's nothing better in my life than seeing live performances and yes of course that you can compare all of the the different performances but there's such joy in that production absolutely book it 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 Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. And you know, it's it's a special time in in the year, Chip. It's it's Turkey Day, it's Thanksgiving. Let's discuss a book with somebody who is a lot smarter than us. Steve, I hope one day that we can become literate. <laughs> Are you guys calling me a turkey right now? Oh, Pam, Pam Bedore is here for our monthly book club discussion. This week is is not usually the week that we have this discussion. We usually wait till the end of the month, but Thanksgiving's here, family time, time for a good book. Good morning. May Pam. I say American Thanksgiving is here. We had Canadian Thanksgiving some six weeks ago. So let's bring out a real American book then, huh? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is The Lincoln Highway. It was published in 2021 by Amor Tolls. And I got to tell you, this might be one of the most literary books that we've read for this book club, Pam. You guys, 
I kept waiting for aliens or time travel or <laughs> I didn't realize it was mainstream. And really, it's kind of embarrassing how long I was like, this is quite a it's quite a lengthy setup, I thought, for a science fiction novel. But then eventually, like 200 pages in, I just looked it up and realized we're reading mainstream literary fiction this week. Okay, <laughs> I'm in. So <laughs> I really, really, that is a true story of my oh, reading funny. experience. Well, you guys recommended it. I didn't think it was going to be well. To be Americana, fair, you know. To be fair, this is a chip recommendation. This is not okay. a Steve recommendation. So it's not time travel. This is Americana. <laughs> this is it definitely is. the story of America in a specific time period. Nineteen fifty-four is the setting for this one. This is a, a, an excellent book. In, in fact, I read a gentleman in Moscow a couple years ago and that written by the same author. And I, I didn't know what to expect in this. And I, this would make a great movie mm -hmm. uh, series. Uh, certainly. I mean, it's, it's 10 days of adventure. Yes, it is that great American road trip adventure. I love a road trip. I love a road trip movie. I love the story of the adventure that can be had. And the Lincoln Highway is, is a particular road that goes all the way across our country. And I used to live right off of Lincoln Highway in the south suburbs of Chicago. Route 30 Lincoln Highway is the one of the main drags in that area. And Pam, did you notice he didn't use his southern accent? Southside. I was in the outside of Chicago. You go over by Lincoln Highway. There's a jewel over by there, and then you you turn. You turn by the jewel, and then and then you go over over by Dominic's. Thank you, Chip, for prompting that wonderful display. Over by, over by is a big thing in the south suburbs. Go socks. <laughs> so, Steve, as you note. The novel is indeed set in 1954 in a very, very specific time and place. But at the same time, published in 2021, do you guys see this in any way as a pandemic novel, as a novel? You know, to, to what degree are we interacting with the current day, the date of publication just last year and this historical moment? There's a good point. It was published in 2021, October. So did he write it during the pandemic or did was this written before? I, I don't know the answer to your, your great question, Pam. I, I, I think that it is definitely a modern tale. It is definitely told from a point of view in the 21st century incorporating all of the ideals, those American ideals from the 1950s. I'm going to mention something. Do you find this to be kind of an adventure like the Goonies mm -hmm. movie or Stephen King's uh, mm -hmm. Stand By Me type of, uh, I mean, if you had to put together like a, a library of stories, this would be certainly part of it. Huck Finn. Maybe so you're mentioning like a list of, of boys' adventures. And yes, these two boys, Emmett Watson and his little eight-year-old brother, Billy, go on this adventure, this road trip. And yes, I get all of those feels from all of those other stories. And then at the same time, I feel like being in education and Steve and Chip to a degree as well, 
we're, we're always thinking about how the pandemic has impacted our kids and the sort of inequitable learning loss that children and K through PhD, that, that young people have experienced during the pandemic. And I guess I kept thinking about that as I met our four main characters, because we have Billy and Emmett, our Midwestern boys who are kind of, you know, like average kids in a way, middle-class Midwestern American boys. And although of course, Billy is such a wonderful, precocious eight-year-old character, he's fantastic. He's a kid who would have spent the pandemic multiplying his learning, right? Who would have spent the time to really, really, really develop all of his thoughts and ideas. Because he's such a reader. Exactly. That that element of that character being a reader, understanding literature, and being our voice for how stories work is brilliant in this. And he's a reader and a re-reader. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he's a reader and a thinker. But then we have we have Wooly, who represents the very upper class, you know, came over on the, his family, came over on the Mayflower, um, you know, entitled American sector who mm-hmm. really in many ways you know, financially benefits from the, the pandemic. And who, I just it kept and then we have Duchess. The, you know, and the vaudeville piece is such an important part. Illiterate, can't swim, but can talk his way out of anything. Street smart. The book smart versus the street smart. And boy, do I love vaudeville. I adore the stories that came out of that era. And the way that this character, being a generation removed from vaudeville, being a part of it only in that he was dragged along in that era. Fantastic storytelling. Yeah, see here, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) you killed my brother (laughs) so steve as you were saying i do think this novel even though it's set in the 50s and gives us a lot of insights about that sort of after the wars peacetime what was america like before korea and vietnam i do think it's really it couldn't have been written before 2021 you know what i mean it has that insight that we've gained in the 21st century about our history, but also about American identity. And those themes of grief and loss are so prevalent in this story that, yeah, I I agree with you that this author has been at least a little bit in this knowledge of the pandemic when he was writing this. There's so much America to this. There's so much of that, again, ideal of what America means to the rest of the world in this story. And of course, one of the big things we always think of with Americana is the American dream. So Mm -hmm. that notion of people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and getting things done, meeting their goals. And I guess I'm curious, like, how do you think the American dream gets represented refracted throughout this novel it's much more complicated i mean they're going to california but you know they're going to go to new york first (laughs) with with almost nothing with no money with with this small package of money that they find that it becomes a part of their legacy and then they have this money then they don't have money and and it's it's amazing 
they have a definite plan. Like we want to get to California. Um, but you know, they've taken our car and they've gone to New York. So, you know, we're going to jump on the train and we're going to go. And then every moment there's another little, you know, I shouldn't say hiccup, something it's like a little detour that mm-hmm. takes them away from what their ultimate goal is. And on the train, we meet such interesting characters. The characters that are written for this are are so different, so diverse. And we get, I, I honestly can think of a whole story w- with each of these separate characters. Ulysses and Pastor John that they meet on the train. Ulysses' story might be the main story of this. Well, he, he was the person who protected those kids. But there's also that that whole metaphor that his name is Ulysses, that he is the adventurer, that his adventure is what is being, you know, recaptured in this adventure with Billy and Emmett. Good point. Good point. And he becomes aware of what his. Which one of the kids, one of them told him the the history of the, of the name and Billy and as he's telling the, the the history of the name and where it came from, I think he, at least his remarks, he goes, it's never been more beautiful explained to me. Anyway, it, it kind of sets up the, the bonds and um, where ultimately he leads them. Well, and I think that's a really, really important part of the story, right? Is that when Billy says, oh, I know where your name comes from. And Ulysses says, well, everybody knows it comes from Ulysses S. Grant, the great Civil War general. And so he's noting his name. He's thinking of his name as an American name. And then Billy says- Just like an American. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But But that's that's the message, yeah. But that's his framework, right? His framework is through the lens of America. And then Billy says, oh, no, no, it could be- not only bigger, more global, but actually mythical, right? So there's actually a different way of thinking about your name, which gives you a different way of thinking about your story. And so that's just, I think, a super important moment in the novel in thinking about like, what does it mean to be American? The entire novel is set not only in America, but actually in the Eastern half of America. And the fact that they never go to California. They, in fact, they never, they never walk one inch West. (laughs) They go, right? Their plan in Nebraska, in the middle of the country is to travel West. And they don't even take a single inch in that direction. Their travels take them East, 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 East. What does that mean? And guys, can you connect it to the fact that the chapters, did you notice how the chapters are numbered in this novel? Yes. They <laughs> 10, are. 9, 8, 7, 6, right? These are numbered in reverse chronological order. What's that about? I think these things are connected, the sort of time, space, playing with, with time and space. The West doesn't matter, and it's all on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that it's, I think that there is this feeling that California is somehow this special place. Everybody thinks of California and and its influence over what we do in the rest of the country. And and these boys really want to get there because this glorious 
thought of what California is. They don't have that for New York City. They don't? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Do you think that they were glorifying New York City in this story? No, but New York is incredibly important. In fact, it could be argued to be the most important city in the world as of right now. Maybe not. I mean, there, there are a bunch of them that could be part of that. But California today is the trendsetter. I mean, where are your cars designed? California. Mm-hmm. Where are your computers designed? California. Where does your entertainment come? California. California at that point was still the Wild West, but mm-hmm. it has turned into this. I mean, it certainly has everything that people thought that California could be. It is. But New York it finances the world. So I love that cultural analysis of American cities. And I, I think that that's definitely part of what this novel is doing. But there's also a really in-depth exploration of people's individual identities, right? And how those are connected to both place and time. And I think that the reason Emmett and Billy want to go to California is a nostalgic one, right? Hmm. It's, it's a search for the mother, right? So their mother, who disappeared mysteriously, which is such an awesome story, may or may not, let's be really clear, may or may not be waiting for them on July 4th at the, you know, in California at this very specific July 4th celebration. And I think as readers, we're like, may not, you know, like we're just not confident that these, these, you know, seven-year-old postcards are are the answer to everything. But I think there's like, I, I love that you bring up Chip, there's this sort of notion of the promise of the West, but then there's a, there's a move forward and backward at once. Mm -hmm. There's a nostalgic reason for going there. Although Emmett, the practical one is like, and I'm a practical person who became a carpenter and I can flip houses, which is a very like <laughs> very, 21st century. Very 2020. Yes, for sure. Money, right? yeah, exactly. but, but also maybe very Midwest, right? The man with the practical skills, not, not looking to change the world, looking to like rehab a house to survive. I mean, and 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 a um, certainly you know you can make it you know HGTV can make it much more glamorous, but for most people, I mean, it's it's just a living. It's 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 mm-hmm. you know, you're you're not fi- you're not you're not finding the the cure to COVID. You're you know you're going in and looking at a house and 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 renewing it. But I think it's more than to survive. It's to experience the American dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, this novel is very much setting, and I mean the road you were saying you love the road trip novel the road trip movie steve i mean that is but you said the road i don't love (laughs) i know that is very true not the road the road trip is totally different (laughs) from the road agree (laughs) yes agree so (laughs) um but i think you know near the end of the novel he really doubles down on something that comes up earlier, the idea of in media res, this idea of starting a novel, a story in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you tell a story in media res is the idea you start in the middle. And that's basically what we find out, I think, sort of at the end of the novel, that what we've been reading is Billy's telling of this 
10 days of his life, but you need to go forward and backward. You need to go east when you thought you were going west in order to tell your story. And so there's something, I think that the, the chapter numbering of going backward is all connected to this big question of how do we tell not only individual stories of interesting people, and in this case, very much interested in young boys, how do young boys become young men? And what happens to those who don't become young men? This is a very, very sad, sad story. We'll yeah. talk about the ending, but I will tell you right now, I was shocked by the ending of this novel. Really? <laughs> I was. I, I was like not. It. Interesting. But uh, but isn't that, I mean, I should isn't that part of the experience? Many times when you're experiencing life, you know, you're experiencing going forward, a couple steps back, you, the, the, the parts of life, but up until, until the time when it's sort of finished, your, your time is over. When you step back, you can see where the adventure has gone. And that's where, you know, the novel comes in because at that point, as they're experiencing it, you're experiencing with them, but that's just, you know, the ebbs and flow of life, which is where you back up and you go, oh, wow, they really did go on this adventure. We're yeah. all just stories in the end. Make it a good one. That's my favorite <laughs> quote from Doctor Who. It, it, it's true. We're all just stories at the end. It's We have a story that is is an adventure like and, and Steve, we don't always have to have an origin story for the first movie. That's right. Starting in the <laughs> middle can be very, very important to the structure of the storytelling, for sure. And it sort of brings in, there's quite a lot in this story about legacy, right? About objects that get passed from one character to another and stories that get passed from one character to another. And they don't have to be through kinship. They can be through family or kinship ties, but they can also be through friendship, right? And literature. Exactly. And then there's the idea that each of us, you know, we each have such a short story, even if it's 100 years, that's still just a tiny short story in the tapestry of human life and experience. And then if you want to step back from that, the bigger tapestry of the Earth's life and experience, which is something that I think people are thinking about more and more with the climate crisis is thinking of temporality in terms of billions of years instead of hundreds. And so um, so this novel, I think, sort of embodies that notion of 21st century thoughts of temporality as well. And I love the point of view that the author gives us. Each chapter is from a different character's point of view. And I find it fascinating that only Duchess is in first person. Everything else is in third person except for duchess can what what is your theory on why the author chose that pam well i think it's partly because we're seeing duchess i mean he ends with duchesses and i i'm spoiling here <laughs> stop here um if you haven't finished the novel but he ends with duchess's death and so that is i mean that's a trope that we see you know like in Divergent, for example. Oh my God, I'm just going to spoil all the books. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, <laughs> I Chicago-based Divergent. I feel very silly because when you have a number of characters and only one per one of them is in the first person, you should predict that they're going to die. 
Hmm. And I didn't. So good job. Good job, Amber Tolls. It got me. Um, and, and you shouldn't have. So I think that is, that's, um, but also I think Duchess is perhaps the character who we don't 100% know who he is. I mean, all of these characters are stereotypes, right? <laughs> they're, they're very specific types. And because he is in that tradition of the vaudeville, he's specifically a character who's trying to surprise us. So it makes sense to put us in his perspective so that we can get that sort of, to enhance that surprise notion. Because the whole time I was trying to decide if Duchess was the antagonist. Is he the bad guy? Is he the one who is doing all these things to our protagonist? And he is the 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 bad guy. And putting that character in first person really highlighted that character for me. Like, I need to know more about this character than the other characters. This character is more important. So I was going to say I want to push back, but that's not true. I want to provide a different thought because I guess... I didn't see this as a novel that invited protagonist antagonist reading. Okay. Cause to me, like each of these, I mean, I just said the characters are stereotyped, which they totally are, but right. I, I guess I feel like we're trying to, I think that the author here is trying to find a frame that's outside of protagonist antagonist. That's looking at like, how are these different characters created? I mean, each of these three boys ends up in a reform school, right? For really, really different reasons. And the idea that the one character we've seen doing, you know, pretty awful things is the one who was framed by his own father, mm. except we don't even know if that's true. That's Duchess's story. So we, we actually, we're not really con, we're not sure that's true, but Emmett ends up at the reform school very much by accident. And Wooly also, right? And and even you know, Townhouse ends up at the reform school only because he won't he won't narc on his friends. And so these, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not sure there is an antagonist. I, I think hmm. there are challenges and people who try to face those challenges, but I'm not sure protagonist antagonist works, honestly, in the 21st century. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. There's, there's a revelation right there. Um. <laughs> wow. I, I, I see your point of view that there is no protagonist. There is no antagonist. I was struggling to figure out, you know, where these characters fit into that structure. They are all equally interesting equally having their own adventure they are all very much stereotypes they're ha having a very specific adventure and and i was struggling with that so maybe maybe <laughs> there's no such thing anymore gender and protagonists out <laughs> temporality rethinking <laughs> yeah. i think this is uh for me it was just an adventure story um where things happened and uh, they were fascinating and i enjoyed going along for the story I was surprised at the end, but I was very satisfied with this book. So I was looking. So the author of this novel, he actually wrote a series of discussion questions for book groups. Oh, right. Which is always fun. And so I don't do, know. If do, you we have a, do we have the Howard Johnson in this? <laughs> I mean, Howard Johnson is right. Well, I mean, it, it, we, we go to an orange and blue clash. That's right. We, we, we go to an Howard Johnson's. He doesn't order the clams, 
Yeah, uh, and he doesn't get the orange sherbet. What's all that all about? It's the 1950s. <laughs> but but it's I liked that it was fun to look at his questions. Um, literally, only one of which I moved into the questions that I put into our our little preparatory notes. But one of his questions was, "Who is your favorite character and why?" Oh. And I actually think that him asking that question reveals what his goal was, which is to really provide us with a number of different characters and perspectives. And with the idea that certain readers will connect more with certain characters and that that's okay, that that's a good thing. He's not trying to focus us through a single He's not character. going to throw us in the trunk, you know, um, <laughs> and then, you know, have us revealed with, you know, when the warden leaves, is he? <laughs> My favorite character was Billy, for sure. Billy is is the voice of the author, the voice of literature, the voice of storytelling in such a wonderful way. He is such an informed little eight-year-old, and I think that the, the author puts so much emphasis on who Billy is as a lifelong learner, as a person who knows how stories like this go, and then putting that into the fabric of this story is just glorious when it happens. I, I could, I, I kind of rotate. I mean, that's what the author did too. Just rotate mm -hmm. through the stories. I mean, eventually you come to pastor John and his special use of language and circular <laughs> logic and, and, but you know, he's just, he's a, a, a con man. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about Billy, and I, I love that you're bringing up like the secondary characters are so awesome. But the nice thing about Billy is that he has read Professor Abernathy's compendium of heroes uh, 25 times. And <laughs> he reads it once more during the 10 days of, of the novel. And then when he meets Professor Abernathy, he's the perfect reader, right? So mm -hmm. Professor Abernathy, hard at work in his office on the 55th floor in New York City, skyscraper, the first time Billy has ever ridden an elevator. <laughs> Right? That's how writing works, right? Pam, you go to your office and you write. <laughs> exactly. Welcome to NaNoWriMo, right? <laughs> exactly. And so Professor Abernathy is thrilled to meet this eight-year-old boy. This is Professor Abernathy's ideal reader. And Professor Abernathy has placed in his compendium the letter Y. His approach to heroes is hilarious. We get one per, one per letter. And so if, if your name happens to start with an M or an S, like... Yeah, you're probably not in the compendium. But if you're like a mediocre Q, you know, you could be the the hero of the Qs. But he but but in a way, like he sets up because the letters set up, there's we're all in different competitions based on how we're born and where we're born and what our opportunities are, right? There's that's sort of a, a part of the setup. But when but but his letter Y is you. And so he's got eight pages for the boy to, to write his own story. And when he meets his ideal reader, Billy, he realizes, oh, that eight pages isn't going to be enough. You're going to need a whole book. And he hands him a book. So he embodies this notion that if you write a really great book, the response to that isn't a book review. It isn't a podcast. It's writing a book back. Wow. Right. And so the book that we have read, The Lincoln Highway, is Billy's story, which is writing a book back to Huckleberry Finn, to the Grapes of Wrath, 
which came out, um, you know, during the depression, right before this period to all of the great American novels, that's, that's how you respond. So I think, and that's why I think Billy is the main character of this novel, mm. but at the same time, the protagonist, hmm? the protagonist. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that, but my favorite character was Wooly just because of all of his amazing out of the box philosophy. He's so great. So there were so many moments, you know, this is a character who can't actually succeed, right? Who can't make it through. Right. I'm afraid I didn't 100%. I thought the novel wasn't going to go dark. And it's not mm-hmm. that I didn't, I loved the ending, but I, it seemed like a novel that wasn't going to go there, even though it was setting us up to go there. Mm-hmm. But Willie's a character who's, who's too, who's too outside the box to, to survive. One of the moments that really made me pause, and I should have got the quote, but I'll just remind you of it is when Wooly loves dictionaries, right? He loves to look up words and see what they mean. And if there's a word in the definition he doesn't know, he looks up that word and sees what it means. So he loves that sense of order, but he has an absolute abhorrence of the thesaurus. I love that. And the reason for that- Is there another word for that? (laughs) (laughs) The reason for that is that the thesaurus multiplies possibilities exponentially. And so he actually asks his math teacher, and this is my favorite moment of the whole novel. He asks his math teacher, if there are 10 words for every word in my sentence, how many, how many options does that make? And the math teacher says 10 billion. <laughs> you know, and, and so this notion that we can rewrite the whole story, we can take a story and using a thesaurus, using an algorithm, Mm -hmm. we can retell it 10 billion ways. I mean, this is the great American novel, but there are so many great American novels. So I don't know, Wooly to me was such a, I don't know, such a opening the window Mm-hmm. into so many of the author's concerns and questions, which are the concerns and questions of all of us in our postmodern times. He's such a heartfelt character. He really wears his heart on his sleeve where we're, we're not sure about Duchess. We know Wooly. We understand Wooly. And yes, the, the sad, dark ending for Wooly we should have seen coming, but at the same time, I, I agree with you that I, I was not sure what was going to happen in that situation. You you were surprised with the ending. I, I, I said no earlier in the conversation and now rethinking it. I, I was not super surprised, but at the same time, I didn't think that this book was going to do that, was going to go to uh, this story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and ends with the suicide, the choice of ending the story like Wooly did. Yeah. That, I, I, it makes sense, yeah. and, and I, I sort of suspected 
that we were going to see the end of this character, but I, I at the same time, it went it went pretty darkly there. And, and do you think that um, maybe? I mean, would would a, a book that was written fifty years ago or a hundred years ago go in that direction? It wouldn't have gone there, you guys. Hmm. It wouldn't have gone there. Even a book like The Grapes of Wrath, which is an actual journey from, I think it's Nebraska, but anyway, somewhere in the in the Midwest sure. to California. It's the mm. it's the story, it's the trajectory they thought they were going to take during the depression with enormous uh analysis. You know, you get the the story and then one chapter story, one chapter analysis, one chapter story, one chapter analysis. Even that doesn't go as dark as this. Mm. 1930s very 21st century storytelling yes and so i think yeah so we have to you know of course so woolly's decision was very very much foreshadowed i just didn't think this writer at this moment was going to go there but what about duchess's end what about the very end of the novel i mean emmett for the second time in his 18 years has voluntarily, involuntarily been responsible for the death of another child. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that that's, if, if this story is in stereotypes as it is, that's who Emmett is. He has a lot of strength. He has a lot of compassion and he doesn't put up with things and duchess duchess had it coming in some ways didn't he didn't he didn't he i mean didn't he didn't he ruin so many things it, i know he's not the antagonist but in i don't know but that's just i mean I don't know. I guess I felt like that. Uh, this is fascinating for me. It's why I love talking to you guys. I guess, I mean, to me, Duchess gets constructed as this kid who had zero opportunities. So you know, go to school, right? right? So he's his father, his father turned him, like used him as a scapegoat for his father's own crime. You know, he grew up in a world of illusion. Mm-hmm. And the only strategy he has for surviving as an adult is to create illusions. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I just, I just felt awful for Duchess. I just felt so much empathy for Duchess. And so the fact that Emmett knew he couldn't swim, because it's funny, because we know, we find that out really earlier, but then Billy says, Emmett, he can't swim. Well, we'll put him in a boat with his $50,000. Um what is that about? Like, how does that structure Emmett in the end? Right. It it does structure Emmett as as much more cruel. Yeah. yeah. I think Duchess had it coming though. I, I just I never I never had as much compassion for Duchess in all of his awful situations. And and we have such a, a clear picture of who this kid is and all of the terrible things that he had no control over and that happened to him. But at the same time, I, I still see him as the antagonist, as, as the one who is driving the story with his choices and makes makes Billy's life and Emmett's life awful for this whole story. I don't know. So what about Sally? We haven't talked about Sally yet. 
our one female protagonist-ish character. I know. <laughs> at least a perspective. We at least Absolutely. get the female perspective from Sally, and she has a, a different life. I didn't really know what to make of Sally, honestly. She was, I felt like she, we, we spent so little time with her, and she was always cooking and cleaning because those were the things that were available to her. And then when she has her one big adventure where she gets in her truck and drives somewhere, she ends up <laughs> cooking and cleaning and doing childcare in really? her new location. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know. Hold a vacation <laughs> in a different place. It's a, it's a different, it's a different I mean, type I mean, of cleaning. But isn't that emblematic of, of the, the, female lifestyle at least of 1954 if not today i love my wife and what she's able to do for me and the children I mean, that's, i'm a terrible that's, person but I, i'm saying like that's pretty much how she's constructed and i i kept wondering if like sally would because i mean the 1950s are a time of you know, like a lot happens in feminist circles in the 1950s. A lot of progress is made towards gender mm-hmm. equality, but Sally's not part of that. <laughs> she right. wishes she could be, but she's not. But but but, but, but that a- also was a sense of pride at that time, is mm-hmm. to have, I don't know, a settled, whatever you think of American life at the time. She is another stereotype for sure. These are all stereotype characters and she is the caregiver. She is the mother figure. Uh, is she the only mother figure other than the, the mother who abandoned the family and went possibly to California? I mean, you could see the madam as a sort of mother figure. True. Possibly. You gotta look, you gotta look hard for mother figures in this novel. I think, I mean, Willie's sister, you know, Willie's older sister, Sarah is pregnant and very much cares for Wooly in a motherly fashion, helps him to memorize his little speech when he's 10 and everything. But I don't know. This is, this is a, like, we're told right at the beginning, we have an absent mother and I'm not sure that role ever gets filled. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, Sally, as I read her, she wants to marry Emmett and he has no interest in her. She's the girl next door, literally. And he wants to have an adventure. So well done. This is this is such <laughs> a great story. Uh, I hope that we're doing it justice and giving our listeners an idea of the the great writing that this is. I was I was intrigued from the first page of this of how well constructed this is, and this is the maybe the most literary story that we've read for the book club, and it doesn't have time travel. <laughs> Well, here's my question. <laughs> Except it sort of does, Steve. <laughs> it's written in 2021, but it's set in 1954. And it's and the pro- chapters go 10, 9, 8, right. <laughs> Go ahead, Chip. I was going to say, um, so far I've read two of his novels. Both of them have been excellent. I would love to explore the rest of his work because obviously this is a very gifted writer. So we recommend this book, right? This is one of our books that we would recommend. Is this a book that just about anybody can access the the ideas because of the diversity of the characters? I think middle schoolers could do it. Certainly high schoolers for sure. But I think it's, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty read. It's very readable and it has these young protagonists. So that's fun. Yeah, I, I would say that if you were in middle school and up, you're on a road trip, you wanted to to read an adventure story. 
or listen to an adventure story, this would be a, a good one for that road trip. The, maybe the maybe, audio book. Maybe if you were going from I don't know Nebraska to California, but you wanted to go to New York first. <laughs> and the audiobook is excellent. I thought the there were different readers for the different characters and they were very, very good. I love it when an audiobook does that. When there is a diversity of characters like this, having a diversity of readers is is so good for the storytelling. So I'm gonna mention this. Tolls, who is our author, he had his first book published, uh, Rules of Civility, in 2011. Uh, a gentleman in Moscow, 2016. You have arrived at your destination, 2019, 2021, the Lincoln Highway. That he's speeding up writing. I mean, that's that's a pretty healthy clip right there. So, may I close out the conversation with a quote? Sure. You know me. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been wonderful, thought Wooly, if everybody's life was like a piece in a jigsaw puzzle? then no one person's life would ever be an inconvenience to anyone else's. It would just fit snugly in its very own specially designed spot. And in so doing would enable the whole intricate picture to become complete. I'll just let that sit there. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor for not only how we interact with each other, but for how stories interact with other stories. And for America. That's isn't that the the ideal of the melting pot is that we all fit together and we don't step on each other's toes. We just or uh, I'm sorry, we don't inconvenience anyone else. We just fit. That's be, that's beautiful. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for joining us for another month of our wonderful book club, The Lincoln Highway. Uh, th thank you for for reading these books with us. Well, thank you for choosing a mainstream novel, but next time, tell me. <laughs> this was a lot of fun and so much fun to talk to you guys about it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's The Lincoln Highway, published in 2021 by Amor Tolls. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. Hey, Chip, what is going on in the world of sports? Well, um, Steve, there's lots of controversy in the world of sports, but you know what? The World Cup takes place, you know, every few years. And what do we got? We got a World Cup. So the holidays are here and you're going to want to know what you can do during some of that downtime. Well, the World Cup is the premier soccer tournament in the world. And it's taking place this year in Qatar, which is an interesting location and very uh, controversial spot. Well, of course it is. Uh, I don't think the Middle East is particularly known for human rights. Mm. Um, and uh, certainly these stadiums need to be built and how they got it. There's lots of scandals around FIFA, the mm. governing body of, uh, of soccer uh, or football, as it's known elsewhere. Whatever that is, the games are on, they're going to be played, and uh, they go from Sunday, November 20th, last Sunday, all the way through December 18th, which is a Sunday, that'll be the championship, the week before the holiday season starts, Steve. Oh, I think the holiday season starts right now with Thanksgiving, just goes all the way through the first of the year. That's, that's the way I see it. One of the things about the FIFA 
tournament in Qatar is they don't allow the use of alcohol in that country. So Budweiser was originally told that they were going to allow alcohol and and beer sales during the games. And then they were told this week that, no, they are no longer going to allow that. And uh, Budweiser tweeted, well, this is awkward. <laughs> That that's one situation that we we have tied to Twitter this week. The other one is Elon Musk has made uh, some changes at Twitter this week. Well, when he bought the firm, mm -hmm. he basically has to make cuts. There wasn't enough revenue, and so um, one of the uh, the challenges he had, well, in fact, what he talked about this week was they cut the uh, the food service. He basically said that every uh, meal that was being prepared was basically costing the company about $400 because no one was in the office. Mm -hmm. So one of the things he asked is for his employees to come back to the office. And uh, if they do come back to the office, I'm sure things will be okay. But he's certainly looking for a very a smaller group of people mm -hmm. to be able to work this company. It's not unheard of for a um a new ownership to come in and try to cut costs mm -hmm. where a company was bleeding but the challenge is is that because twitter is such um the center of how com companies communicate mm -hmm. how individuals communicate there's been backlash i mean cbs news has announced that they're not going to be updating their their scroll but, you know, the Babylon Bee has been, been asked to come back and they are posting now. So mm -hmm. what, what, are, what are we getting? We're, we're getting um, some people are coming back. Some people are allowed to come back. We've got employees who are uncertain. And some employees who are very certain and have left the company because they do not want to be involved with this. And some of them by choice and some of them by, uh, by, by not by choice. Mm -hmm. But the point of it is, is they've got to become a smaller staff. They have to become profitable. And um, Elon Musk is, you know, he's, he's got history of running companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the real challenge is, will it be able to weather this part to be able to get to the next part, which is offering what has become for many people a very simple way of communicating directly with the world mm -hmm. we i i am very tuned into what will happen with this situation we are currently still on twitter too much scrolling but uh we'll see we'll see what the the week brings with elon musk i i and and with that i'm, I'm not even understanding when you watch the news or read the news, the amount of references they have, we got this off Twitter, yeah, is is unbelievable. And I'm a person who doesn't use Twitter very much, professionally or personally. Mm -hmm. You you are the person who uses Twitter. Yeah, I I have been, and I I haven't been posting nearly as much on Twitter this week. I've been switching over to Instagram. A lot of people I've been in communication with have switched over to other alternatives. Mastodon is uh, the alternative that's being proposed, and I I don't see that one taking off. It that's much more of that old fashioned bulletin board system. I don't know that that will be the launching pad for all of that communication the way Twitter has been for for years we'll see we'll see what happens 
The thing that's going to happen on Thursday is Turkey Day. I used to tell a Turkey Day joke at this point, Chip, but you've gotten hip to my Turkey Day joke. Turkey Day 2022 is happening. That is the day that we watch bad movies. The MST3K Turkey Day Marathon happening on Thursday, November 24th, starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, up to 50% of us watch uh, Turkey Day, Steve. (laughs) I will be tuning in. This year, it's on the Gizmoplex, MST3K's new independent streaming platform. Go to MST3KTurkeyDay.com for all the information on how to watch it and uh, enjoy the surgically enhanced versions of the movies that they are presenting this year. Uh, Enhanced up to 1080p. This is high-definition bad movies, Chip. Well, you know, the best of the worst, right? best of the worst they're going to be beautiful and terrible (laughs) i look forward to turkey day on thursday and then friday and saturday and sunday i so look forward to chicago tardis 2022 at the weston lombard our doctor who convention so if you see us walking around the convention make sure you come up and say hello to us you know you can do a good morning for us that would be exciting yeah, but we're going to have... say good afternoon, not good afternoon. Well, you know, for some of us, that's a that's a tough way of uh, communicating, Steve. Good afternoon, sir. <laughs> that you know, maybe there's a catchphrase for the the whole holiday. I really think, I really think that Spirited gave us the phrase "good afternoon." As much as "good morning" is my thing, and I get celebrities to say that "good afternoon" is going to be my next thing. So Chicago TARDIS is one of the premier uh, Doctor Who conventions. Pretty much anybody and everybody who has been part of this amazing show Mm -hmm. will have some presence there at some point. So if you come every year, there's a good chance you'll meet so many of them. That's right. It's, that's the best thing is is meeting all of the production staff and all of the actors who are part of this show. And going forward, they have so much in front of them, the new production, the new Disney Plus connection, the new logo, the new Doctor. We have so much to talk about at Chicago TARDIS this year. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week. I think we can, as long as we're not full of turkey and full of joy from Chicago TARDIS and Turkey Day. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is TooMuchScrolling.com. Our email is TooMuchScrolling at gmail.com. We're still on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Tom Turkey. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What I wanna make you more What I wanna